This episode is brought to you by Arden Labs Education. Sign up today to learn advanced concepts in Go, Docker, Kubernetes, Terraform, and more. Visit ardenlabs.com forward slash education for more information. Welcome to the Arn Labs podcast. Our special guest today is Cheetan Kaneki. Dude, I am so happy to have you because I've, I think you're one of the first people I've ever got to really know and meet when I started the Go community around 2013. You were one of the first people to be kind to me and talk to me. And um, I've always appreciated that. And you've always been doing interesting stuff. So I thought having you on the show would be would be really, really cool, especially since we haven't caught up in a while. Absolutely, Bill. Uh, first of all, good morning. Uh, good morning to all listeners. And uh, it's fantastic to be here as a guest for many reasons. Uh, first one being that we haven't spoken forever, uh, you know, and I have been a big admirer of you as a person, uh, especially the effort that you put in incubating this Go community and then harnessing the potential of the community to become what you have become today, you know, as a company. Um, so as a friend, I'm very proud of you. And as a listener, as a attendee of your training sessions, um, you know, I'm very excited, happy, because the way you teach is a very unique skill that you have. Not everyone has that skill because imparting education is not, easy if you know we all remember certain teachers who actually leave an imprint because they taught us something that we can actually recall even as time passes and um, i remember when i attended that training of yours uh, you have a very clear distilled way of drawing analogies to teach a topic and uh, you know just excited just excited to what, what Arden Labs has become today, what you're doing and looking forward to more. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, and coming from you means a lot. So, so thank you for that. This is a, a, a conversation about you and your journey and, and kind of how you gotten to where you are. And I, I really believe that there's always more than a handful of other people kind of on the same journey, different stages. And so kind of listening to other people's stories can help others know that they're on the right path, maybe know they're on the wrong path, right? Or something there. So give give everybody a couple minutes here on kind of what you're doing today. So very quickly, my name is Chetan Karnaki. Um, I'm the CTO and founder of a cybersecurity company called ShiftLeft. Uh, we are a private company. We founded almost approximately six years ago. So uh, we've been through that journey of uh, discovering the necessity of trying to meet an unmet need for a customer from a cybersecurity perspective, and now evolve through those growth, growth spurts of uh, providing our service to many enterprise companies and, and looking forward to doing that at, at a higher blast radius. Is that um, shiftleft.io? Yes, that is shiftleft.io. Oh, nice. nice. I looked it up while you were uh, talking because I wanted to see it. So oh, I can't wait to talk about how, how you got into um, security. Security is such a, it's such a big word. And when somebody says they're in security, my brain doesn't know how to focus itself because 
security can be like a billion things, right? So what, at least in my head, so kind of what aspects of security is your company focused on? Uh, we as a company are primarily focused on application security. Uh, and to your point, right, the word security is sorts of muddled, overloaded, and um, exasperated from a marketing perspective for many good and bad reasons. But uh, going down to what we do as a company, we analyze an application written in one of the many programming languages. You know, by the way, we support about nine of the top programming languages. And as we analyze them, we extract certain vectors from the program, which is, you know, typically when an engineer writes program, they're using heuristics, they're using their expertise, and they're architecting a solution to meet the business needs. And at times, as they move fast to deliver their solutions, they essentially take certain intended shortcuts or non-intended mistakes that manifest as they move fast. These mistakes can be exploited by malintentioned individuals or bad actors who are enumerating the applications from the outside, uh, you know, for many purposes. So if you distill down application security, what we effectively do is analyze an app. We extract a fingerprint. That fingerprint contains characteristics of your app. How does your app look like? Which resources is your app communicating with? What are the API endpoints? What are those paths in your app that validates an input that's received from the outside? What is the negative of it? Which is what are the paths that are not validate the inputs? And if not validated, what is the consequence? Meaning if an attacker essentially is trying to inject a attack vector through that path, what would it lead to? SQL injection, remote code injection, uh, directory escape. Fortunately, you know, we have a consortium that has categorized different types of vulnerabilities and mapped it to conditions that lead for those vulnerabilities to manifest. This is cool, right? Because this is a whole area of almost integration testing that you never get to because you're so busy fixing other bugs and things. And to have another company to be able to do some of this for you is awesome. So the two questions I have, just thinking about this right now is, when is the best time to engage a company like yourself for this and is this an ongoing sort of thing that you're constantly doing almost even regression or do you kind of do it once to get that to feel comfortable when you first release the product let's say or at some point in the dev cycle a great question bill um for that we have to sorts of understand an interesting concept called as the adjacent possible you know if you google that word adjacent possible uh, you will get some interesting analogies and if I use a very simple example, right, uh, Netflix became what it is today because of the digital transformation, which is the internet provided the ability to stream content. And prior to that, when internet was not, or broadband was not at that state, uh, we were at the mercy of Blockbuster, where we used to get our CDs and DVDs on rental basis and return them. If we pull back that analogy into the world of infrastructure and security, the CICD pipeline is that unlock because the CICD pipeline is almost synonymous to a conveyor belt. 
where your app is being built, it's tested, it's packaged, and then dropped into that conveyor belt. And then you, re you run a series of checks and balances. And most of these checks and balances are fences that you define as an architect, as an organization, where you're either measuring for quality, you're measuring for performance, you're measuring for security. And if perhaps the, the shape of your application or the, the, the results of your application does not meet those guidelines, then you punt it back and say, go fix it. You punt it back to the left. So there is somewhat of a, you know, a feedback loop that begins where, you know, your ultimate goal is to improve the posture and thereafter let the application move forwards. And as it moves forwards, it reduces the risk of your organization getting exploited. So that's cool. So you integrated as part of that CI/CD pipeline. So then my last question, and we're going to get to your story because I, I want to get to that story. Is this something then, and I think in terms of like New Relic, where the develop the development team doesn't even have to get involved in order to get this working and running to help that software that's being developed? Absolutely. Absolutely. And to answer your question, right, um, security is a multiplayer game. It's not a single player game. And I'll usually use game theory as we speak. Um, certain games are single player. Like if you have an IDE and you're providing value through an IDE, like VS Code or IntelliJ, you're single player because you're focused on the dev. The dev is interacting, extracting these cool features that 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 manifests through the IDE. But when it comes to security, you know there are three parts to it. One is you detect a potential vulnerability. The second is you make a decision of whether you should fix it or not. And the third is you continue to observe to see whether what you've applied as a fix is good enough or not. It is multiplayer because the first persona of detection is owned by AppSec. They implement the program, they implement the controls. And to your point, they have to do it in a way or the product should help them do it in a way without pulling all the other players off the game. And thereafter, once they enable the detection, it should not open the floodgate of sending tons of vulnerabilities to devs. Because as we know, devs are incented to write code, not fix bugs. All your bonus structures, your incentives, your growth cycles, your performance metrics and OKRs are all about how, what is my commit ratios? What's my burn rate? But you never see one little, you know, metric out there that says number of bucks reduced. And um, so it's the, it's upon the onus of the AppSec to ensure that only what matters or needs to be fixed, which is a whittled down list goes to the devs so that they're maniacally focused on fixing those items of high risk and then thereafter deploying it. And then in runtime, you observe where you're saying, I fix something, but I don't trust my fix because, you know, hackers don't have incentives, don't have timelines. They're just enumerating on the other side. And their one goal is exploit the app, initiate ransomware, which is either, you know, cost to the company and benefit to them. So there are three cycles. One is uh, detect, fix and remediate, observe. Interesting. I'm going through right now, it's been so long since I had a project this big and we're now 
and it, there's a UI to it, which I hate working on UIs, man. I just, they're just riddled with like, they're going to be problems. There's no way around it. Anyway, we now have a QA team going through the UI, which, you know, and they're just finding bug after bug, right? And it's just, and I, now I'm stuck in exactly kind of what you, you said, I have to figure out a process of priority. Do I have the dev fix the bug? Do I have the dev continue deving on the feature that they started working on? Is QA blocked at this point? Do we have to do this? And the same thing will happen if we're using, you know, uh, a JSON web token and open policy uh, for all the API stuff, right? So JSON web token against uh, an open policy agent. And, and I like that. I mean, it's kind of cool. But it's the same thing, right? Is it is it blocking QA? Is it a pri so it's even is this a priority and all that? And then telling that dev that they got to stop working on this to do that. I don't know. The whole thing is complicated, man. <laughs> I completely agree with you. You know, security is somewhat um, stuck in this messy middle, is what I call it, because everyone wants to be secure, but they haven't created. Um, you know, an habit forming system so that if security becomes like dev development, you no longer treat it as uh, asset control. Uh, right now it becomes asset debt because, you know, you're just, you're just incurring debt when you pass on doing something that is critical. Uh, so it comes back to that one thing, uh, you know, your one rant that you started where you said, I do not like user interfaces. That's where I principally think the problem exists, where the interface is that 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 particular membrane between you know experience and an individual and if you make interfaces sucky for example security just gives you a list of things here are a ton of things go fix it and then my my brain which is my analyzing brain is asking myself okay if i if i sift through this list and fix it what is my return on investment am i going to get a bonus is my boss going to pat me on the back and say, good job? Or he's going to say, oh, you forgot to do that. We expected that deliverable. So I feel like, you know, there is an opportunity for innovating in the experience. And that needs to be done. Otherwise, you know, just punting a list of things for someone to fix with no incentive uh, just adds to debt. It's funny because my incentive is I want to sleep at night. Don't. I, I want to know that these things aren't going to happen so I can sleep at night and not be woken up at three. Like that's my biggest, at least maybe at my age after 30 years. And as I'm building these, these web APIs to drive these front ends that we're building, like I have 30 years of experience. And so I kind of have in my head the do's and don'ts of a lot of things. And I'm also at the point from a security standpoint in this, in these products where I don't want anything hard-coded in the service to deal with authentication or authorization. That's where I kind of like OPA because I can, I can download their, the Rego files, the, the code, right? So I can get a token and I can get the script and I can run them dynamically. And if something's broken with the script, well, somebody can change that and I can pull down the new one and now we can, we can apply it. And I don't have to rebuild a binary. Like, that's where I'm kind of at this year. Can I can I handle authentication and authorization in a way, in a secure way? Because what then keeps me up at night is, well, somebody found a backdoor and they're sending me 
uh, Rego files now that open up the water gates, right? So yeah, this is great. It's not hard coded anymore. But what if I, what if they get hacked? And now what I'm pulling down is allowing any, anyone and everyone to get in. And I, now that keeps me, right? So, and I don't know enough yet how to secure that because <laughs> that's new. <laughs> but you see where I'm, see where I'm going? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. I mean, to your point, right, you mentioned two things. One is you do not like to be woken up at night with an issue that you perhaps don't have as much insight about. Because often what wakes you up at night is an alert. That alert could be because your system is down um, as a consequence of an outage or potentially someone has exploited your app. There is consequence to that. So uh, it is important to actually create a hygiene where you know anything that you want to incorporate to make a fundamental change in your process has to become habit forming where it's just like exercising you wake up one day and you realize that you're not healthy and you say i'm going to fundamentally change by controlling what i eat and then then exercise to ensure that my health is going to change uh, likewise you know your code is almost like like these genetics your your organization is like a cell your code is like a small atom and it's a part of a genetics. So uh, what you need to do is change that hygiene where, like you mentioned, you analyze your code, you identify risks, and then further identify what is causing this risk to happen. Meaning if you have engineers hard coding credentials, then you have to at first detect that there is a pattern where many engineers are doing that. And then your detection should say, let's fix it. But at the same time, let's fix the habit as well. So going forward, no one else does it, but chooses Walt. So it's incremental, but over time, right? Detection and observability is what is making untenable things controlled. It's creating this, they, they use the term homeostasis, which is, um, you know, what is that equilibrium that you need in your org, which is good habit so that you're not woken up. And if you're woken up, all that information that, is provided to you takes you to solve the problem not causes you to spend hours figuring out why you were woken up but i also and i try to teach this is this idea of wearing two hats right i mean i have my developer hat on but there's an i'm going to just call it the ops hat right and i have to really be two different people at times because i may not be the ops person when this thing's in production but I want to give that ops person, whether it's an SRE or, or somebody who's responsible to make sure these systems are up and, and secure and all that. I mean, if I don't give them the knobs to do that, then they don't really, they can't do anything other than monitor and call me. You're identifying some telemetry during this CICD process, which is awesome. But is there anything that you're also producing that could help once the product's in production or the idea is you're not going to, you're going to catch as much as we can before it gets into production. Because once it's in production, it's a different sort of problem. I, I completely agree with you, right? Um, there needs to be a flywheel and a feedback loop between what happens in production that bears consequence to the decisions you made before you push that into production. Um, we had in the past built a runtime agent, which observed whether any changes that you applied or ignored has consequence once it runs in production. The job of that agent was to observe 
whether the application is being attacked. Now, suppose, you know, during analysis, we identified a cross-site scripting vulnerability, but the engineer chose not to fix it because they're either busy or they felt, you know, this is a false positive. Now, when it makes its way to production, you have a hacker enumerating that path, just trying different permutations and combinations, and then boom, one, one worked. So our runtime agent understands that someone has triggered the path, sending a exploitive payload. And by the way, your risk now is exasperated because you know they are succeeding. We released it, but at some point we came to conclusion that um, yeah, there was this, I call it as the many agent paradox, where today every solution, pointed solution is adding another agent in your infrastructure to provide you value. So you as a consumer ask yourself that, you know, how many agents do I need to run to make sure my system works? And you make that decision, but at some point assume these agents begin to interfere with each other and then further on impact your performance of your app. This was the dilemma that we were dealing with. And, uh, you know, we concluded that we have to do it right. So uh, now we are back to the drawing board. We're going to take an agent less approach so that there is zero impact in runtime. But uh, you're right on mark. Like we're building a system with a full flywheel, which identifies the issue, identifies the risk of having that issue running when you've chosen to ignore it, and then telling you how to address it and fix it based on the exploit payload. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll hopefully get back to this before our time is up. But I wanna, um, I haven't had any guests, I don't think, that have kind of been in this space. So that's why I had all these questions. I love when I meet somebody where I've had questions for a long time. But I wanna, I wanna jump into the time machine here with you. So a couple of questions before we start. Um, where did you grow up and, and go to grade school? I grew up in India. You know, uh, I grew up in a state in India called as Bangalore, which is south of India. and uh, I pretty much spent majority of my growing years out there till the point that, uh, you know, I pivoted to come pursue my master's here in the United States. Um, so India is a very interesting country in, in its own right. Um, you know, it's, it's still my home and uh, it's equally my home. I, I love America too. It's one of the most uh, welcoming countries with most humble, honest, good people. India is a place uh, where, you know, family means everything. You know, you sort of typically grow up in a close net family. And uh, often education is key in India uh, because, you know, higher the higher degree of population are in the uh, mid income class or, or what they call as middle class. Uh, when you're in the middle class, you're often surviving. You know, your core focus is, you know, how do I ensure that the paycheck is made and how do I save 90% of the paycheck for a rainy day? So most of the people live in a fairly simple uh, setting or simple environment where, you know, you, you have uh, not much needs for other aspects of life. Um, so I grew up in a family, uh, you know, we were two brothers, a very small, you know, tightly networked family. Uh, my dad was a businessman, worked really hard. Um, focus for us as a family was education. 
you know, how do we strive to ensure that we excel in what we do? And uh, often there are only two paths. You know, there are not very many options in India. It's either you become an engineer, either you become a doctor. <laughs> so uh, because of this, uh, you know, dual path mode, we often choose one. And, uh, you know, I completed my bachelor's in computer science. Wait, before we get there, I'm going to slow you down a little bit because I've had recently a few guests um, who grew up in India, but I never ever asked this question, and it popped in my head right now while while we were talking here, because even with my other guests, education was was it was very similar, middle class education. Like I've heard these stories before, but now I'm wondering. Actually, I'm wondering two things. One, with a population that is so large over there, I, I imagine, and I've heard grimaces of this, but I mean, competition has got to be fierce for everything you want to do and get into because you're, it's not, you're not just competing against, say, a hundred thousand people or um, even a million people. I mean, it's tens of millions of people you're competing against. So that's interesting to me. And then, the schools that your parents really want you to be in, are they free public schools or are they kind of private schools? I've never asked that question before that, with the schooling. Completely agree with you. Uh, uh, from what I heard in the latest stat on Twitter or latest statistic that was published on Twitter is we are almost uh, hitting the threshold of a billion right now from a population standpoint. So uh, your question is rightfully placed where if every family strives for being educated or having their kids get the right education, we are in a very fierce and competitive landscape. And uh, like you stated, you know, there are many universities, but there are few of them. They're almost synonymous to the Ivy Leagues in the US where everyone is striving to get into that Ivy League. So when they strive, you know, it's a matter of just, uh, decimals on the percentage of how someone makes it and someone does not make it. And fortunately, you know, given that education is a vector that is very important in the country, uh, they have created different tiers of universities. So it's not uh, all dismay and loss if you don't get into the Ivy League, you pick the next. And um, the fee structure, you know, unlike the US, which is more structured, more um, organized from a perspective of public institutions versus private in institutions. Um, we don't have that structure in India uh, where, you know, education is free, but education is nominal. It's not like you have to break the bank to get educated. And given the structure and the DNA of a typical family in India is uh, the parents manage to save up to ensure that they pay the fee for the children. But this is the university, right? This is so I had a couple stories recently where both my guests talked about taking that test, the test, the test that you're competing like against 200,000 people. And to get into the top tier engineering school for computer science, if you weren't in the first 200, like 200 out of 200,000, like you weren't, at least at the time that they were taking this test, let's say a decade ago, like you weren't getting into computer science. Like you and I are a little bit older, right? Like what, 
what year you remember what year it was when you took that test to decide what universities you were going to be even allowed or at least subjects in universities you were allowed to go to i think it was 92 or 91 if i remember <laughs> this long ago yeah but depending on where you ranked on that session of the test really got to determine what was available to you right yeah Exactly, exactly. Uh, and there's just not one test. <laughs> there are many tests, in fact, where um, you have a certain type of institution called as the IIT, which is one of the best. It's almost synonymous to a Stanford or a Duke or, or uh, you know, Harvard in the US. They have a certain test where you have to write that test to qualify for that institution. And then you have the other tiered university, which comes below that, where you again have to take a test to qualify for those as well. In many instances, you have kids who start taking tuition and training for this years in advance. I had a guest spent two years after grade school studying for that ITT test. Exactly. And exactly. the cool thing was like she got like in the 900s. But it still wasn't enough for her to do initially what she wanted. Exactly. Exactly. That was mind blowing to me. <laughs> it's it's just that it's so competitive and and everyone is so well prepared. It, it's just a matter of uh, floating point decimals that determine whether you made it or not. You know, because the list is large. So so I'm gonna pull you back. So tell me about that time in your life. Like, it's time to decide. A, a path here and you have to take that test. So, so go, go back in time there a little bit and, and, and kind of share with me what you were hoping for at that time and what ended up happening, which maybe is what you were hoping for, right? But, <laughs> but talk to me a little bit about that time, because that seems like a really stressful time for many people. If I sit in this time machine and go back, right. Um, I was partly stressed, but at the same time, I also was confident. It was a mixed feeling because I was well prepared. And uh, I also had baseline my ambition. You know, I was not striving for the Ivy League of equivalent of India. That was something that I knew. I disqualified that part. Um, I knew that I wanted to choose a university that was in my state, which is Bangalore, where I grew up. For many reasons, because I had my friends around, I had my family around and, and I figured, you know, okay, if I go to study there, I can always spend weekends hanging with my family and friend. And uh, in retrospect, right, uh, I feel it does not actually matter which university you go in. It really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. It's, it's very subjective because as an individual, it boils down to how intellectual, how successful, um, how reflective you become on the basis of how you actually take in the subject, whatever you're reading, whatever you're learning, and impart that into what you're doing. There has to be somewhat of a feedback loop. Um, and if I, after I qualified in the test, I got into, I had options. I got into about three of those universities. I picked one, one of the best in uh, the state of Bangalore. Um, I really enjoyed studying there because I was amongst people who are very, very smart. What was the, what was the studies? Was it going to be engineering, computer science? What, what was the, 
It was bachelor's in computer science, BS okay, so, in computer okay. science and engineering. Okay, which still wasn't that easy to get into, even if you decided I'm going to go to a local school. And I mean, you still had to score pretty good for that. That wasn't exactly. Uh, you know, I I I think I scored well to get uh, into that institution, and uh, you know, uh, I was amongst people who scored even better than me. Uh, you know, those who actually aced it. Uh, literally, we're not speaking 99th percentile, literally aced it. You know, they got no mistakes. Uh, so standard and bar was high. I was amongst people who were really smart. So I had to amp up my game. And, uh, you know, like I said, okay, I got into computer science, great. And, and you start learning about the basics of both hardware engineering and software engineering. But given that, uh, you know, India is, we are, we are growing up in, you know, an upper middle class uh, society. Uh, we have to think before we go and buy a computer. It was not like we just visit Best Buy or, you know, um, Micro Center and just decide one weekend to buy a computer. Uh, we have to understand what would the cost be? How would it reflect on, you know, if we buy, you know, what would, how much of that savings would get impacted? All that comes into play. So unlike some of the stories, we didn't have a computer for a long time. We were working off shared computers in the university, uh, learning the basis of what computer science is, learning physics, learning math, uh, you know, and getting a well-rounded experience. And uh, over, over a period of time, you know, I would say I had no idea of how I'm going to take all of this and implement it. You know, that's the true story. I was just learning. I was inquisitive. I was just learning. But you didn't have, you had only access to machines on campus to do sort of lab work. Like you must have been doing programming. It's just, you couldn't take it home with you. You can absolutely. You had to be you on campus. But I'm sure there were students that had their own machines too. You just happened to be in a place where you couldn't afford your own machine for a while. Actually, the, in fact, not very many had. I could say 99% didn't have machines because at that point, Machines were very expensive, right? Uh, it's it's uh, we had a even in the United States, a machine was uh, if, to buy a PC. Uh, you need to think about it, unlike today, you know, where you can just make that decision in minutes and and put. Yeah, they were thousands of dollars. Like in '92, you were probably going to spend fifteen hundred US on a uh, on a PC DOS machine, which you would have been using at the t at the time. It's a big, big investment. And that's almost like one lakh rupees. That's a lot of money. <laughs> and, um, you know, they, most of them in any university weren't focused of, do I need a machine at home? They were more like, how could I exploit the lab? How could I leverage the time that I have? Uh, how could I schedule myself into the system? Because if you have one computer, you might have 20 people wanting to work on it. So you got to figure um, allocation of time, making sure that you get the most of your time and, and then reflect back to get, you know, what are you going to do the next day from what you've learned the previous day? So it was a hustle, but you know, in a, a good way, you know, it was not a hustle that, that, that made you tired or made you left regrets, you know, you sort of enjoy it because you don't know what is otherwise, right? That's the only thing that's available for you. No, and it's also good because you were kind of learning time management exactly. as well, right? Not like the kids tonight. My my son, he drives me crazy. He just I'm going to waste the next hour doing nothing. 
Like, yeah, there's none of that because you have to really schedule your life around access to things. So it was fun. You know, I, I have no regrets. I, I reflect sometimes, you know, there are many, any good decision you make has paid you back. Any bad decision you make uh, has helped you understand how not to make it again, but at the same time gives you some sense of strategic thinking. So you do four years at this university, you're learning your undergraduate sort of computer science, I guess four years from now. So like maybe around 96, you're, you're going to graduate and now the next path occurs, right? Like, do I get more education? Do I go in the workforce? And then I imagine you must've had some internships at least your last two years too, right? Cause that's a big thing I've heard. So what were, what internships did you have prior to graduating as well? I did work for about uh, 10 to 11 months at uh, a company in India. And that phase was fairly interesting. It was somewhat of a tipping point or inflection point of uh, information technology in India. Most of that inflection was driven by Y2K. I'd say fortunately, unfortunately, because, you know, um, the rest of the world was preparing for Y2K. Y2K was a mundane task, which is you literally have to sift through records uh, and show that, you know, all the applications you built are compliant and does not suffer any issues during the transition. Yeah, but people were making a ton of money, dude. Like people were consulting at like 200 bucks an hour just to change, just to do what you're talking about. Exactly. That was wild, wild at the time. And, and you know, that, that particular era, right? Um, there were tactical aspects of Y2K and there were mundane aspects of Y2K, which is, um, it's almost like mechanical Turk where uh, you literally have to sift through ledgers, code and, and apply certain changes which are methodical right? Brain dead. A lot of the brain dead work got shipped to India because, you know, many large companies figured out that they could leverage that opportunity. And um, they, at that time, also figured out how to, in the first wave, it was all about just um, deploying humans to solve the problem. Just like how Mechanical Turk works, right? Uh, except this is happening at scale. And at some point, human becomes cost because it's a cost center, right? The more you hire, it's almost like professional services. You know, you know if your cost of goods sold exceed your revenue, then your negative profit. So over time, they managed to automate some aspects of it, which means they wrote applications. They reduced the human footprint. And over time, they started building a practice. And if they successfully managed to solve uh, you know, a complete conversion of Y2K for a specific org, then they have a business case to go and sell that product to other orgs. So I felt that inflection point is what lifted India, improved its fitness landscape and made it, you know, the Silicon Valley, perhaps um, from an IT standpoint or information technology standpoint. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to stop you for a second because I'm going to, I'm going to share with you the other side of that at this, at that time. Because I was working for a mid-sized company, and I remember at the time the fear from U.S. developers that all the jobs were going over to India because the Indian developers over there were cheap, and they were willing to work for pennies on the dollar, right, that, that we were working. And I remember 
like these sorts of fears and conversations happening in that time. And then, and I'm, I really want your kind of thoughts on this, because then I think at some point what I, what reduced a lot of the fears from my colleagues was this idea that, yeah, a lot of stuff was going to India to get done, but then it wasn't getting done at a high level of engineering, and some of that job was coming, work was coming back. And so then the water cooler talk was always, oh, don't worry about it, it's going to come back, it's going to come back. So uh, you were on the other side of that at the same time because you were getting that work that was being taken, let's say, out of my department and kind of moved over to India. It's fascinating because I don't think I ever met anybody my age that were that was on the other side of that whole and and after Y2K, what ends up happening? Do do the jobs stay there or do they do they do they leave? Great question. Uh, but but one I'll just clarify one thing. You know, I I did not actually work on anything Y2K related. Like my first gig was finance related. I'll get to that later in our conversation. But my colleagues across on the other aisle were actually working Y2K. And I, I was a witness to that. But um, to answer your specific question, right, uh, it's almost uh, perspective related. Like uh, when you look at uh, a zero-sum game where someone subjectively thinks they have lost while someone subjectively thinks they have won, uh, it almost seems like uh, each of these entities don't understand the perspective on the other side. Like from, from in India, it hit that inflection point. Um, none of the engineers in India had any idea of how the outside world is perceiving them. They just look at, wow, something's happening here and I'm a part of the something big, right? And and you just, you begin to actually build it over, you know, from a skill set standpoint, from an opportunity standpoint. Um, so there was ecstasy and joy at that point because they began to see something that they didn't see, like all of us together. And now I've flipped the coin, right? Like you stated, from, from the perspective of engineers and, and skilled professionals in the US, uh, they were going through the arc of um, human emotion, which is what, what we call as anger, denial, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Yeah, the five stages right? of death. <laughs> exactly, the five stages of death. And, and I say that, you know, no matter what happens, every inflection point causes that. Like right now, as you and I are speaking, with the advent of chat GPT, the same emotions are playing out. Every day you have some abstraction built over chat GPT that says, I can, the AI can write code. So an engineer is no longer needed. And the AI component can generate intelligent content. So no longer a marketing person is needed for copyright, right? So the situation is every inflection point has this tendency, but it does not actually mean that there is, I call it as a positive sum game because over a period of time, you know, it feels like someone's losing, someone's winning, but each inflection is causing more opportunity to be created and it creates its own set of problems. And again, humans have to come into the loop to figure out how to automate the problem, how to implement strategy over the problem. So uh, I get what you're saying. I, you know, completely align with the fact that, uh, for us, we didn't see that perspective. We didn't feel the, 
and sentiment. Uh, it was mostly that, you know, something's happening that it didn't happen before. Let's figure out a way to learn, leverage it and grow. It's funny, and I'm glad you brought up the chat GBT because I'm one of the few people I know right now that's excited about that technology and what they've done from an engineering perspective and what it can do for the future. It, it doesn't scare me. It doesn't make me, I know what my worth is as an engineer. So I know that it's not going to, if anything, it's the same thing that was happening in the nineties where I, I still know people who were engineers back then that still have this horrific bias against engineers from India because they felt that fear that they were going to be losing their job and they've never kind of let it go. I always looked at it as I didn't want to do that stuff anyway. So I got no problem with somebody else doing it and I can work on other things. It's the same thing for me with ChatGB. Well, some of that stuff I didn't want to do anyway. So let it, <laughs> let that happen. Like I, I can work on bigger things. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. But the job, okay, so you were, in, I'm sorry, go on, go on, go on, finish. Yeah, no, please complete your thought. Please complete. No, I was going to get back to that internship um, where you were, you were focusing on the finance stuff. So now that you're guaranteed you're going to graduate, what is it that you decide next? More education or workforce? Startup? I heard several stories where everything in India at the time was a startup. It's almost like you moved from university to startup first. Actually, it, it's it's quite the counter, right? At that point, if I remember, um, it was less about startups. The way the way I perceive startups is disruptive, building something that fundamentally challenges status quo, right? The typical Silicon Valley definition of a startup. At that point, there was an emergence opportunity-related emergence, the inflection point of Y2K that said, um, you know, there's a huge opportunity to build um, value from a technology perspective to serve other clients worldwide. Most of the companies created at that in that era was mostly focused and leaning in on services, which is you have a large organization, say, for instance, Ford Motor Company or McKinsey or, or any any company worldwide. Um, they figured out that, you know, if they want to implement a new solution, um, they tap into the labor workforce outside the realm of their org. And, and it was mostly cost basis related. It, if I were to do it here, it's going to cost X. But if I do it elsewhere, it's going to cost Y. And there's enough proof points to say that other companies have successfully leveraged the path. The disruption that happened was human labor force, which is how to leverage and tap into, you know, labor force that existed outside the realm of their organization. Um, it is an antithesis of startup. You know, it was not related to going and picking a business domain and disrupting it. It was mostly um, here's a project. Let's figure out and do sizing. Let's implement that solution and uh, let's deliver that successfully and try to retain ourselves for sustenance, which means that, you know, you just keep getting paid to sustain that project or if they're happy, they give you other projects. So that was the modus operandi. So this is the other thing I'd heard as well, right? This is the, the beginning of the very large dev shops in India that could take on any sort of project because they have 500 developers 
sitting. Now, I'd never seen one of these. So here's the impression that I got in the mid-90s. There was a super-sized building like the size of Costco filled with little desks with everybody's cramped up, working on software projects that were coming in. Like that was always like kind of what they were, whoever was they, right? That was always the impression. Like Costco-sized buildings with 500 desks in them, everybody's crammed up together and they're working on software projects, right? Like, and obviously that's ridiculous, right? I mean, that's silly. Yes, yes. It's it's a little... uh exaggerated it's the typical the meme or you know if if you have maybe a comedian like jay leno who's trying to analyze that situation right it was not that case um it was uh, if we have to broadly call that something it was called as business process outsourcing they call it as bpo typically for companies executing something that is outsourced as a project and implementing it um they were done in a very high standard environment. It was a very, you know, almost, uh, you know, very well-structured offices, you know, employees were taken care of. It's just like, you know, if you were to go out and work for, um, you know, a Deloitte or McKinsey, right? You have a good uh, surrounding, you have good incentive. Um, So employees were taken care of. It was not like a, sweatshop or it was not like a market uh mass market i'm telling you they made us i'm young at the time i'm in my mid-20s and they're and what everybody's saying is they're running sweatshops over there developers just taking them out of school and they're taking our jobs and my brain would go like it's not impossible (laughs) it's typically like we spoke of the arc of human emotion right when you're angry you have the tendency to reflect that anger to to draw out a scenario to to convince you or make you feel good right and and i feel like there was there was that arc of human emotion that that led to you know painting that picture but it was not that case and uh it was like when i worked i didn't actually work on anything that was outsourced i was uh, i was working specifically we spoke of finance if it's a good time i can give you an idea of what i was working on yeah, yeah. I want to know what happened after that university. So, so it sounds like you went into the job market. Exactly. I went into the job market and uh, I was working on a project that was affiliated with uh, a consortium called a SWIFT, S-W-I-F-T, which is Society of Worldwide Interbanking and Financial Telecom. That's what it stands for. Um, if I have to summarize what that means is if you ever moved money across the border, um, you your definition of money transfer, which is if you're moving money, uh, say Bill's account to Jane's account in Switzerland, um, you have to follow a certain principle where the money gets transferred, then your identity is checked, Jane's identity is checked, uh, the threshold of the transfer is checked to ensure this is not a fraudulent transfer, and then the transfer is initiated on a secure channel. So in summary, it exchanges so many hands, but it fits into a protocol, just like your JWT tokens. There was a specification that was almost a 4,000 space specification where there were so many attributes that you got to fill and show that, you know, everything is accounted for and it all goes into a general ledger, you know, as that transfer is initiated. Um, so I got deputed. Wait, wait, this, this, this spec was done 
pre-electronic transfer or or was it part of an electronic transfer or was it also a manual process? <laughs> as much as you think electronic is electronic, but actually behind the electronic, there's a lot of humans <laughs> and fax machines operating. <laughs> oh so my goodness. It's like, okay. It's like the Rube Goldberg's machine where, you know, uh, <laughs> it principally everything is documented, but you know, there's a lot of fax machines, humans, <laughs> phones, oh. et cetera, et cetera. Right. Okay. Um, that that's how things used to be. Now, of course, things have changed. But I'll give you a glimpse of how things are still like that in the world of ACH, which is you know the clearinghouse when we move money between banks today. Um, but I cut my teeth there. I you know had the good opportunity of working in that domain where I was surrounded by people who uh, understood the business domain and they were implementing parts of that business domain as a private business as a way of providing swift to banks i guess or consumer c to b or something like that okay it's it's institution to institution which is you know if it's bank to bank like in the united states we have uh, 10000 credit unions we have about top 10 financial institutions and likewise in the world right we have the same equation and if these two institutions need to exchange money they have to follow a certain protocol and that's what we were doing. We were building that protocol. We were monitoring that protocol, identifying, looking at the general ledger, identifying potential fraud and so on and so forth. Did you find that work interesting, that, that finance work interesting? Oh, absolutely. I just loved it because I had no idea of that world. You know, of course, you, you, you have your years on the stock market. You understand how to trade with get put calls. Just like in the US, we used to trade in India as well. But the underpinnings of all of that is something that, you know, is so abstracted. It's like the genie in the box. You assume the box exists, you operate with the box. Um, this gave the opportunity to open the box, understand what, what happens, what, what moves. And uh, it was quite fascinating for me. You know, I learned so much in that year um, because I was quite inquisitive. And I was surrounded by very intelligent people who were asking really good questions. At that time, XML was the hardest thing. And these folks were sitting in the room where I had the good opportunity of interacting with a few folks in Virginia as well, in, in US when I was sitting in India, where they're saying, I think it's time for us to move this protocol to XML. <laughs> so, you know, at that point I was cracking, XML is interesting, you know, it's, it's more formed, it's more structured, it's easy to query, uh, it can be partitioned. And I remember having these debates mostly in listening mode because I was an intern. You know, my job was mostly to listen at that point, not express judgment. But, um, you know, that was, I felt like an inflection point for me personally in my career, which said, you know, technology is changing. Everything is evolving. The internet is becoming mature. Um, it's enabling more services. Um, and then just like any other Indian kid, right? Half of your ambition is, I want to continue my education. I want to figure out a way to, to, to un understand more outside the realm of what I already learned. And most of the kids head that path where, you know, you migrate to a country. It could be United States, it could be Australia, it could be London, where you go and seek a master's. Um, and again, that is also an expensive affair. It's not cheap. So you've got to figure out a way to, to plan that, figure out scholarships, uh, because that is debt again, right? And and everything needs to be planned. So coursing that path, you know, I had a good one year um, 
after that one year, um, you know, like every other Indian kid, I found my way here. Um, had the good opportunity to pursue my master's um, in, again, computer science, extended what I learned. Where did you do that? In California? Uh, University of Iowa. So Iowa. Iowa. Yeah, Iowa, Dude. Iowa. Iowa. Iowa and Iowa and Columbus. I was I was an East Coaster before I made my way here. So Iowa, uh, bro. You went from Bangalore, which is like tropical, to to like the North Country, man. That was a big change in climate for you, wasn't it? Were you you had any idea what was about to happen to you? No, <laughs> no. Uh, you're just literally thrown into a situation, and uh, you have to adapt. <laughs> So that's the only options, right? You make the choice and you have to adapt. And that that was, you know, the thing on your mind. And the other thing is you leave your family behind. You know, you, you your securities are left behind. Yeah. And, and you have to fend for yourself. You have to figure out uh, how to navigate that ecosystem, the universe. Uh, but, you know, I have nothing. What year was that? Like 98, 99? It was, yes, yes, 98, 99. And uh, it was a wonderful experience, wonderful experience. Um, yeah, I have nothing but great things, great memories, because United States as a country is a country that provides opportunity for everyone. Like, you know, I just remember coming in with an empty slate, empty mind and ambition with not much of money in pocket, but then figuring out everything, learning, observing, uh, using the opportunity to amplify skills. So um, I, I enjoyed my time, made a lot of new friends, had some of my old friends come along with me. Uh, so it was mostly exploration and exploitation, like they say, exploit what you have, explore territories that you haven't. So you do, that was your master's. So that was like a two-year program in yes. Iowa State? Yes. At that point, you did your master's degree, you have that now, you're already in the US, we're talking about 90, 1998. So what's the idea? I wanna stay in the US now and try to find a job here in the States? Yes, yes, that's that's the natural progression again. And uh, firstly, you know, before you even get there, as an immigrant, you gotta figure out a way to to get your visa, to get your green card, to get your citizenship. That that in itself is a path. And uh, again, it is, it, it's an erudious path. It's it's a complex path because, you know, there are many folks who immigrate. There are only, only so many, um, you know, a quota or threshold available for those that get their, their work permit, those that get their citizenship. So you have to be a good citizen. You do your job, pay your taxes. Um, and, and and then file your paperwork for t in time so so that you know you qualify and transcend to these next steps so that's a focus area too for every immigrant where you know you make a decision do i do i want to go back do i want to stay but at that point you, you only have a visa to go to school i mean that has to transfer to like an h1 h1b right which i guess is the I've heard H-1B my whole life because even in the late 90s when I was managing a dev team, um, my company at the time wouldn't accept H-1Bs. It was always, uh, we don't take H-1Bs, which I also came to understand, I think, was a visa that people from India needed as opposed to another type of visa that others, 
I don't understand that whole visa thing. It's it's anyone who's coming into the United States with an intention to work needs a H-1B. That is irrespective of whether it's India, China, uh, UK, etc. Anyone, Canada too, they have to get a H-1B. H-1B is a work permit which says you are qualified to work uh, for a company that sponsors your work permit. And then there are rules of engagement where, you know, you got to work so many hours, you can't work overwork, you can do two jobs, you can only do one job based on what that particular, you know, the permit that you hold. And uh, like you stated, not very many companies want to sponsor because if they haven't done it before, it, it, it in itself is a process, right? You have to, you have to get your attorney attorneys lined up. You have to follow processing. I can hire an immigrant because I need the skill of that immigrant, which I can't find in the United States. So you have to file the, there's an advertisement that goes in the papers, newspapers back in the day when use newspapers were predominant, um, that advertisement runs for 30 days where someone can contest and say, you know, I'm of the skills, I'm a citizen. Why don't you interview me? So they have to interview that person. If the person succeeds, then they kill that advertisement. They don't sponsor the visa. So there's a whole process that plays out. And, um, you know, all of us as immigrants become a part of that process on the conveyor belt where we have to, we say that we are skilled because, you know, we, we have, uh, acquired domain expertise in a certain area. Like we have to prove and justify. And once we prove and justify, we get the permit, depending on which company chooses to sponsor. And um, then at certain cases, the company, um, as you spend time in that company, work for two years, three years, um, they are at times willing to sponsor your green card. Green card is more like a permanent spot where you, you say, okay, I've been working. Uh, but when you work, you don't actually, uh, you don't reap the benefits of social security. You contribute to social security, but you don't reap the benefit. But when you get the green card, you're one step close to reaping that benefit in retirement. And then you spend five years in green card, you get your citizenship, which means all the money that you've been contributing, uh, you know, as, a, you know, I would say a contributor, not a citizen, but a contributor to the, the economy is something that you can reap the benefit from when you retire. So did you end up getting an H-1B and working for a company under an H-1B then after university? Yes. Um, you know, I worked in uh, Columbus in um, a company called as Nationwide Insurance, which you're f familiar with, you know, Nationwide. Uh, it was a very famous insurance company. Uh, they had a slug, life comes at you fast. You know, that was their, <laughs> uh, their little catchphrase in their advertisements. Um, you know, it's mostly life insurance. Now today it's... Um... Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide that's, is on your side. Now they've got Tom Brady. They've got a few others, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, celebrity quarterbacks for them. But uh, Nationwide was a awesome institution. You know, again, I learned a ton. Good people. Um, enjoyed I, I learning. Wanna, I want to ask you this question. I'm going to ask you this question. Because I, I'm getting all of my, um, I don't want to use the word, I, I don't know what the word is, but all the dumb, silly things that, people have told me or have in my head. I, I, I'm, I'm super curious because I'm always afraid when I hear that somebody's working on an H-1B because I'm afraid that they feel like they're a prisoner of some level. 
like they can't leave that company now. They're kind of stuck there. And then I get nervous. Is the company treating them like they would treat anybody? Or are they treating them in a way because they've got this person locked down? Like, have you ever experienced anything like that? Or did you always feel like if a better opportunity came along, you could go take it? Did you feel beholden to that company because they gave you that opportunity? I, I'm just curious. It's partly a myth again, <laughs> to a certain extent. Yeah. It, the feeling is somewhat, again, uh, subjective, like I say, you know, if, if I if I tell you I don't represent the population, I'll kind of give you my own perspective. Firstly, you know, when you when you become a part of a process, you've got to let the process play out uh, because, you know, it's it's predictable. The whole process has been documented and you understand, OK, if I get an H1, um, the natural steps are I'm go I have to work in this company and I only can work in this company. I can't go get another job. Or if I'm dissatisfied, I can just quit this job and leave in a year. Because again, if I leave, it resets the whole process. Again, you got to let the process play out from point zero. So when you have a predictable path laid out, you have to figure out a ways to optimize on that path. So, you know, my subjective feeling was I was not uh, interpreting this as being imprisoned in the company because, uh, when you use the word imprisoned, it could mean many things. One is you're uh, dissatisfied. You know, you feel uh, you're disgruntled. You feel people are mistreating you and you're stuck. And if all these um, attributes play out, you feel you're imprisoned. Uh, but when you're learning, when you're enjoying what you're doing, when you actually respect the people around you, when the people around you respect you, on the counter, it is actually a positive experience. I learned a ton. I was surrounded by people who are very good people. And and as you were kind of finishing that thought, what was going in my head at the time was how happy I was to hear that you were having that you had a very positive H one B experience at Nationwide. I'm really happy because sometimes it's like if we don't have that program, then people can't get jobs either. And so I always hope that everyone's treated no differently, regardless of kind of your status. Even in my company, I don't care if you're a W-2 employee or a contractor or B2B, it's irrelevant to me, right? Like you're a human being that's working with us to help solve our problems. So all of that should be irrelevant. Exactly, exactly. Um, it's an opportunity and then they are, any decision you make on that path is the risk that you have to bear. Uh, and And it depends on what your milestones are, which is, you're working on a H1 and if your milestone is, I want to stay, I want to get a green card, then you have to respect the process and let it play out. What happens, how long are you at Nationwide? Um, I was in Nationwide for approximately about uh, two and a half years. Um, and then I had the option to continue because they, they were kind enough to start my immigration paperwork as well. Uh, you know, it's a wonderful institution. Uh, but it so happened that some colleagues that I know of um, decided to join a startup in Columbus, Ohio. You know, startups were not so predominant in Columbus, Ohio, but there was a company called Smart Pipes, S-M-A-R-T-P-I-P-E-S. Um, it was started by an entrepreneur from Cisco in San Francisco, and his co-founder was based in Columbus. So that's how, you know, they, they created their office space in Columbus. And um, it was a very interesting problem that they were trying to solve. Uh, which was provisioning software in a data center at that point was 
was complex art. It was not science because you needed an, a data center operator to literally go and sit in a cage, take your software, which was transported on disks and install it. Um, so what SmartPipes was trying to do at that point is, what if we build five data centers around in the United States, automate the aspect of uh, what we call as uh, load balancing, failover, deployment, deployment before deployment was even a term, which is if you got software, you FTP to a site from the FTP, you have like in uh, a job queue that picks it up and uh, you know you define what kind of machine you want, which is provision. And this was even before Amazon. This is, this is the beginnings of the cloud. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's almost the beginning of the cloud where um, they managed they manage to raise a ton of money, um, you know, from very reputed uh, VCs like James Boxdale of Netscape, um, you know, the, the CEO of, uh, you know, I forget the broadband company, uh, you know, TJ Thomas Jomaklov of Excite, Excite.com. Um, and, and it was a very uh, capital intensive business because, you know, you had to rent data centers, you had to provision machines. And then the core business proposition for a customer was, if you're doing remote offices, you need VPNs. So we will, we will eat away that job of you provisioning VPN tunnels. You just push a button, you get a VPN tunnel, and then you deploy your software and then let your software used within your org based on policies. Um, so that was the core business value proposition. It was more inbound rather than public facing outbound web services and stuff, um, because that, that was already being innovated in the Silicon Valley. Um, so they didn't go after capturing that market share. Oh, this was for internal compute. Exactly. In a sense. Exactly. Oh, interesting. So what, what did you do there? What was, what was your job there? I was a part of the monitoring and management team. You call it observability today. <laughs> and during that time, <laughs> we had actually built, uh, you know, abstractions over uh, there's something the agents in those days was called as NNMs, network node managers. It was often there were only a handful of companies that that actually built these agents like HP was one of them. Uh, Computer Associates. This isn't part of that SN. SNMP stuff. SNMP, absolutely. NNM yeah, was I SNMP playing with that. Okay, I played with that stuff in the late '90s for our uh, nationwide network. Yeah. So you know their core value proposition was they they started building abstractions over that that node network node manager, then abstractions that provided value to customers. So you push a button, get the job done. And I was a part of the team monitoring whether all the services are running as expected and as prescribed. And, uh, you know, we, we were using stat statistics, basic stuff like, you know, median mode, uh, you know, some base uh, for anomaly detection, but, but we didn't have a Splunk interface. We didn't have all that coolness. You guys were, no, you'd had nothing. You had to build everything from scratch. You, you, it didn't exist. What 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 programming languages were you using for this? Was that C sharp C? C sharp was not even invented during that time, so it was primarily yeah. That's two thousand two. Exactly, it was a mix of C C plus plus, 
and some and both of these were written using visual studio code visual c++ it was called as visual c++ because it was a microsoft shop and uh, we were provisioning on nt works boxes nt servers deployed in the data center um, and uh, that was fairly challenging fairly interesting because uh, it was somewhat of a switch for me you know i came from the financial domain i went into the insurance domain I, I sorts of like suddenly uh, digressed into data center management. But principally you're writing code. So that's the common part. You're writing programs, which, which are abstracting business logic, but you're operating in different domains. So how long were you there? Because I don't know if they're still around. They're not, uh, they got, they were acquired into Sophos a uh, couple of years ago, almost a decade ago. So um, I, I was there with them for about approximately two years. And uh, I still remember, uh, you know, at some point I requested that, you know, I'd love to move to California because uh, they had an office here. I visited once, I fell in love with the Valley because, you know, from a culture standpoint, everyone's thinking outside the box. And in true sense, disruption was happening in the Valley. Like you had the Netscapes of the world, uh, innovating, building Cisco's at that point, at that precipice. Um, I was just enamored when I visited and, and, you know, that is when I requested them, you know, can I, can I shift to that office and work? And uh, they were kind enough to pro provision or enable me to do that. But when I made the transition, literally about, um, I, I decided to live close to San Francisco airport because, you know, that's where their offices were somewhere in Redwood city, which was in the Bay area. My most distinct memory of that time is I moved. Everything is great for three months, four months, you know, doing my work. And one morning I wake up and 9-11 happens. And, and when 9-11 happens, all of us are shocked. We are literally locked to our TV screens. All of us, almost our hearts drop on the floor because something catastrophic played out, which no one could believe can happen. Um, and then around us in live, everything is playing out like the air. I was living close to the airport, so they shut down all access points, all egress ingress was closed. I, I believe one plane uh, had actually uh, had its manifest takeoff from San Francisco airport. So there was nothing but confusion, sadness, somewhat depression, uncertainty looming, you know, at that incident and then forward for the next few months of that incident. And, uh, you know, the, it was, it was very scary because, uh, you know, that was like literally what we call it as a mini recession and event driven recession that we faced after the event played out and a lot of consolidation, a lot of layoffs. I mean, unfortunately we're seeing the layoffs play out today, but, uh, you know, at that point, I remember every day, you know, especially, you know, the other peril of working on an immigrant visa is when am I going to be laid off is the first question on top of your mind. Because if you are, your life is not coming back to home and searching for a job. You literally have to figure that, you know, I got 30 days. I have to consolidate my life in a suitcase and maybe leave, right? Those are the options. So that was, I remember it was very fearful, you know, because, um, Customers were churning out, you know, no one wants to spend money and just wear the recession out. No, I, I was in a business that was, I would call it a luxury business. 
and the entire sales pipeline dropped in a week. And I, as a manager, had to start letting some people, I had to make decisions on who to let go. And I even, I had to take a pay, ch- pay cut, but I was happy to take a pay cut because I still had a job, right? Um, I, I remember that, that it took people like six months to feel confident again to spend money and hire. Uh, maybe three months. About three, I, I was able to hire back a couple of people in three months. Um, yeah, three. I, I, and the reason I know it was three months, <laughs> because when they came back, they told me that the company, this is a crazy story, dude. We had to let them go because everything was uncertain. I'm able to hire these two people back because things are, the sales pipe is happening again. Companies are willing to start spending money again. And they come to me and they say, Bill, I'm going to lose, they're making me write a check for 200 bucks or I'm going to lose my health insurance because they've been on Cobra for three months and they would have to start over. And I'm like, you don't have 200 bucks, dude. You haven't been, you haven't gotten paid in three months. He's like, yeah, I know. I walk into the HR department with my checkbook and I said, how much does Joseph owe to keep his health insurance? And she looked at me like, what are you doing? I go, we laid them off. Like they, they don't have money. It's 200 bucks. I'll write you a check. And she said, stop. And she went to the owner and they decided to write the checks for everybody they hired back. And it's the only reason I remember it was three months. So like, yeah, really crazy time. It was a very crazy time. And, you know, my, you know, my empathies and heart goes out to what is playing out right now, because, you know, it's, it's not easy when, when someone's impacted. Um, it's not easy for, for that person. Um, so I wish all the folks who've lost the jobs well, life will bounce back. But, you know, I, I remember going through that experience. I, I had the good fortune of having um, a manager who, who gave me enough amplitude and time. Uh, because, you know, I was, I was working there, I had responsibility, but you know, the, there was uncertainty. So I knew I had a clock, so I have to figure out one way to keep my work going in the other way is find a job, but not go through the perils of losing the job. Um, so at that junction, um, you know, after about five to six months, I felt like this is not, uh, uh, maybe I should move because there was, it's very, un- the business became a little uncertain. And uh, they made the decision to consolidate their office in Columbus, Ohio, and shut down the California office to just focus on go-to-market and business. Um, and they put a timeline on it. So uh, I had the good fortune to you know, get another job. You know, this was someone I worked with in the past, and uh, you know, uh, he was building a startup. Uh, you know, he and I understood each other. He understood what skills I can bring. And uh, it was homecoming for me because um, this was a startup focused on finance again. So literally, I went full circle. I came back to finance. That was my core domain. I'm going to interrupt you for a second. I'm going to interrupt you for a second because where? how did you know this person that hired you now for this finance? Did you meet them in university? Did you know them at a job? I knew them at at a job. And, and, you know, they recommended me to the founders of the company and uh, the company was called as uh, Cash Edge. You know, these folks were mostly from the, they had the DNA from PayPal and, uh, you know, they were building back office systems in New York City. 
to support trading, to support fi uh, financial interchange. Uh, so they had a very novel idea at that point. You know, they had three business focus areas. One is what they call as account aggregation, uh, which is if you have many bank accounts, can a system bring all those accounts into a single class pane and show you your 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 balance, your spend, and then thereupon provide wealth management. This is the personal finance management stuff, personal finance. I worked on this. The big problem was asking people for their credentials. It, it depends, right? Now, if you if you do a B2C where you directly go and ask a consumer for the credentials, they'll flinch. But if a bank is providing the service, uh, the bank already has a reputation. So someone believes that they don't have to, uh, they don't forego their risk. So uh, the product that we built had three axes. One axis was account aggregation. The other was online account opening because... I was at that junction or that period was when PayPal became dominant, peer-to-peer -peer money transfer. And um, at that point, brick and mortar banks were getting disrupted. Like the number of branch offices where you had to go in person, open an account to move money, that was reducing in footprint. So where the opportunity was that the internet was ripe for disruption. So is there a way to identify and understand your risk profile based on your identity and let you open an account online without you leaving your house. So this is, this is 2002. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah so, yeah. and the third axis was funds transfer, which is now you got two bank accounts, you know, let's say your bank account of yours and your spouse's and you want to move money between those accounts. So how can you move it and schedule it so that it happens over and over again on a monthly basis? Without so, a uh, large fee, I imagine. Exactly. Exactly. So this company called Escashage innovated and built all these three services, which even to date sits behind all the banks and all the credit unions in the United States. They became the backend technology for... Exactly. It's a white label backend technology. You, you, you haven't even heard of the name, but uh, if you ever sat on top of your Bank of America account or your, uh, you know, any of your Bank One account or JP Morgan, they all are, are using this technology to let you open an account, to fund it, to move money, to schedule a bill. Um, they captured a significant portion of the market share. The technology was very innovative. Um, I had the the opportunity uh, to work on all three of the product lines. Primarily, I was uh, you know working on the funds transfer and the account opening. Uh, good team, again learned a ton. Uh, figure out ways to to measure risks, to measure uncertainty, um, to identify whether a certain transaction uh, carries with it certain profiles, and so on and so forth. But at that point, I also cut my teeth a little bit in security as well, because, you know, when we are working for a team that is constantly servicing banks and getting audited, you better have your security posture together because, you know, if anyone breaks into your system, literally, you know, you're putting the whole financial institutions at risk. All right. I'm going to I'm going to interrupt you for a second because we've got 12 minutes left gonna... and we're only in 2002 here. So that's partly my fault. I haven't managed this our time but there's just so many interesting things I wanted to talk about. Uh, all that being said, I want to get back 
to, you know, shift left here. So try to tell me in a minute, kind of between 2002 and you, what you said shift left was, it's a new business you just started, what, a year ago? No, it's been or, six years now. <laughs> it's not six not so years. Oh, old. good. Okay. Yeah, okay. It's been so, six years. <laughs> so you started that in, um, do the math, in 2016. 2016. 2016. Okay. So tell me, like, ramble off fairly quickly between 2002 and 2016, where you were working. And, and I kind of interested in how many jumps there are in between. From Cashage, uh, I moved briefly to Intuit, worked in Intuit. Uh, worked for uh, the back office that was supporting uh, Quicken, QuickBooks, some integration with TurboTax because it is a continuity to my my life in finance. But this time I shifted I shifted to a larger company from from working with startups, smaller companies. Um, great institution, enjoyed working, understood design, understood how they treat customers, how do they actually care about user experience. But still, I was itching for startup because I was used to actually working on the ground floor. Uh, you know, I didn't, the, the hierarchy of organizations didn't vibe with me well. Uh, so I came back uh, to join a crew that came out of VMware, uh, where we were building a system to observe virtual infrastructures. And at that time, AWS became predominant. So we were striving to build a technology to help companies move from VMware to public clouds. What year was that? Uh, this was 20, 2012 onward. 2012 was when Amazon hit its inflection where AWS became a thing. Everyone was scratching their head and saying, you know, should I move from physical data centers to AWS? And uh, the market share of physical data centers were all VMware. That was the virtual in the physical at that point. And, uh, you know, everyone was thinking those running businesses saying, can I move from VMware to AWS and what would it take if I move from a cost perspective and sizing? Because in the world of VMware, you'd call a host something else compared to AWS, which you'd call as EC2, which has different characteristics as M1, M1 large, extra large, and so on and so forth. So the goal was to build a system that helps you saying this is what my application is running in this uh, characteristic of a virtual host, I would need an M1 large on the other side. So we built a system that used uh, data science, machine learning, that did the mapping and also helped customers move or seek that bridge and move on the other side. Um, it was just started, it almost started with, uh, you know, all X top VMware engineers, I joined them, um, to build their core infrastructure and bring in some data science aspect. Um, so we built out that tech today. Uh, Cloud Physics is part of uh, Hewlett Packard. You know, we were acquired almost about six, seven years ago. But uh, from there on, I landed at ShiftLeft. You know, ShiftLeft um, was the, the company that I was seeking to found. But because at every company I worked for, security was something that we were either lapsing on or we were not establishing proper controls with, or there was not sufficient automation. So much learnings from the past on retrospect was how can you take all of that, make security um, a functional requirement in an org without blocking, interrupting a dev. That was the goal. And, you know, between 2016 to now, uh, you know, we are at uh, uh, Series B plus. We have a large employee base. We are fortunate to have many enterprise customers. 
but the learning still continues. We're building a good product. Our focus is to establish uh, a larger footprint, solve more complex problems because, you know, the infrastructure and landscape is changing as well. I want to go back between 2002 and now because you're switching jobs every couple of years, which I think is cool. I, 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 everyone that I've sort of have sort of talked to in this podcast that does a lot of these little jumps, they've really been in, I'm not saying that you can't benefit from staying in one place for a long time. And I, and I've said this before, if, before I started this podcast, I would have said you're crazy for all these little jumps, create, create more stability in your resume, create more stability in your sort of career. But I've completely changed my mind on that. But you are making these, these, these jumps. So what I'm curious about, because you're an H1B, is that you keep foregoing the whole green card citizenship process every time you jump, right? But you're able to stay here in the States because you've been very good at building relationships where people trust you, know your skill set, and want you to work for them. And they're willing to do what they have to do to bring you in. I think that's absolutely amazing. But now that you're starting your own business, t just tell me, I'm just curious how all that works. Are, can you be an H1B in your own business? Do you have citizenship now? Like, can you just give me two minutes on that? Sure, sure, absolutely. I'll, I'll try to answer your question in three parts, right? Um, I've not been a high-frequency jumper of jobs. You know, I, I've typically stayed minimal three years, maximum about five years in a company. I'll explain to you why. Um, you need to stay in a company long enough through its gestation period so that you understand and grow with the company. Like, uh, often you see folks who just join a Facebook or Meta or a Google stay for like, you know, two, three years and say, I have Google on my resume. That's great. The question is, in the macrocosm, what are you contributing? What have you learned? And if you build something, has that worked? And for all this to play out, you need at least a minimum of three years. That's the gestation period. Um, and most of the time it fails, which means that, you know, there are a lot of learnings during failure rather than success, because success is an oddity. It just doesn't come often. Um, I started coursing that path only after I got my green card. I, you know, I was fortunate enough before I moved to California, I got that sorted out. When I, when I got that sorted out, it gave me the freedom to explore. Otherwise I would not have done it because I would have risked, you know, my position. Um, so it's important, like, you know, even I feel like any company you join and you leave in a year, you, you learned nothing absolutely nothing because it takes a year to understand what the company is doing if you join and it takes the next year to implement something of value and it takes the following year to see what you've implemented works or not and and you have to you have to join that hero's journey or what they call it right joseph campbell's hero journey uh, because you have to hit the bottom and see what's not working and that takes time so let's get then back here for the last sort of four minutes that we have here with um, shift left, because I, I tell a lot of people who want to be entrepreneurs, right? That you got to get through that first five years, that five first five years is what you're going to lose the business almost once you're going to, you're going to go through a lot of your hardship, cash flow, the whole nine yards. 
but you can get through that first five years, especially not wanting to uh, break up with your business partners, right? Which which can happen. You're you're usually in really good shape moving forward, and and you just said that you're six years in. So, uh, tell me a little bit about that. The entrepreneurial the the um, just tell me about the first five years a little bit. Has it been a little bit to, to help others who are maybe just kind of starting out, um, who are thinking about starting their own sort of businesses? I'd be interesting for you to share a little bit about the ups and downs, let's say, over the, these first six years. And how do you kind of feel right now about where the business is? Absolutely. Um, great ending question, because, you know, um, this is something that has uh, made me more curious and I'm going to continue to study this, um, this what I call as organizational dynamics. Um, an organization is almost like a living entity because you have many people working on it. At some point, it develops a conscious and that conscious evolves and you have new patterns that come out of it. So uh, as we build shift left, you know, uh, there were many challenges we have to face because any startup that is built from the scratch, you're challenging status quo. You make a claim you're doing something better than already is. And then you have to figure out a way to market that so that people listen and believe what you're providing them as value. And uh, as your organization evolves, you have to, you have all these levers. One is your product level where you build the product. The other is the marketing level where you message the product. And then at some point you figure out something's working. So you go and hire sales and then you have another knob which you adjust. And now you have customers. So you have customer success, another knob that you have to adjust. And now you have five knobs that you're constantly shifting back and forth. And note that often you there's a, something called as local optima. You might go and amp up one knob, which is development so much that there's a causal effect on the other knob. So as an entrepreneur, you need three things. One is grit because, you know, every journey is sought with many failures and some successes and successes are temporal. Failures can last. When I say failures means challenges where you've tried something, it didn't work. And then you pause and say, I need to move. I need to move fast and adjust something because I'm moving and I can't stop the ship. So. It's important to, first of all, assess, you know, you are a group of people doing things. you got to make sure everyone's mental state is good. You, you hope that everyone is prepared to face these challenges. When you have these very small successes, you celebrate it as much. You forget the challenges and you just celebrate it as much. And then you have no idea of what failure you might hit next. Because... You know, you might, like they say, a data-driven company, you might use data from the past to predict your future, but the environment can throw many surprises at you. Like a recession is a, um, you know, a surprise, then a potential catastrophe in the economy is a surprise. 9-11 um, was a surprise, which you can't predict for. So the question is, how do you adapt? Because your organization is a complex adaptive system and you have to figure out I have to stay on the ship. I have to be prepared for anything that's coming before. I should have the grit. And, you know, you might just read all the successful companies in the press because they don't cover those that are still figuring out their way to success, right? So don't, don't move into the ecosystem of startup assuming everything is going to be hunky-dory and it's going to be a great journey. 
you'll have to have the grit to work your way towards that and earn it. Okay, we are unfortunately out of time. Uh, could, we could talk for, I say this to every guest, I want another hour, but we just don't have it. So, uh, Chayton, if anybody wants to talk to you after this conversation we had, what's the best way for people to uh, reach out? Um, I'm on Twitter at C, my last name, C-O-N-I-K-E-E-C as in cat. Um, you can find me on Twitter. I'll respond to your messages. Um, you can find me on emails, email as well. Just tweet to me if you want to talk further. Always happy to talk, learn, share, impart, etc. And it was a pleasure talking to you, Bill. Pleasure. Always a pleasure talking to you. Yeah. And thank you for uh, sharing as much as you did. We, we, we kind of covered a lot. And now it's good for me, too, because I have a better kind of background. And um, I love what you're doing right now. Uh, with your company at shift left. I'm going to definitely look into that a little bit more. I think it's very cool. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. So this is Bill Kennedy and Chayton signing off from the on labs podcast. And I hope to see everybody again real soon.